0: Welcome, everybody, and especially those of you who are regathering for the first time at our Loring Park campus. I'm so glad that you could be back. Now, also welcome those of you who are in our venues at the In Prairie campus. We're glad that you're joining us. And those of you who are online with us, we're trying to provide you the best platform that we can for participating in the worship experience. So glad you're with us this weekend. Now, let me try to jog your memory a little bit. I don't know if you remember, but some time ago, I introduced you to a Latin phrase, ab portu, which sounds like what? That's right. It sounds like opportunity. It's where we get our English word opportunity from the Latin ab portu. Now, the Latin phrase was used in many ways. It was used by sailors, for instance. See, back in the ancient times, the harbors were not dug out like they are today, so ships had to approach the harbors very carefully. And what they would do is they would wait offshore for a high tide, and then they would ride that tide safely into port. Now, if a captain and his crew happened to miss the high tide, they'd have to stay anchored out in the shallows until the next one would come along. In fact, it's uh, this phrase, portu." that William Shakespeare uses in some famous lines from Julius Caesar, Act 4, Scene 3. Listen to what he says. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. On such a full sea, are we now afloat? We must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. In other words, what Shakespeare's writing there is, when the opportunity presents itself, you've got to take it. If you want victory, if you want success, if you don't take the opportunity, you may be stuck in the shallows, in miseries, in wishing that you had. Hey, welcome everybody to the final installment in season one of our series Endurance, where we're talking about fuel for the journey I said to you that throughout this year, we're going to take a timeout every once in a while and refuel ourselves much like an athlete does, like a cyclist who's on a 100-mile trip. They're going to stop every you know, 10 or 15 miles to hydrate themselves and then also to get that energy from that high-energy bar that they may have or other snacks so they can keep pedaling further on. Well, you and I are on an arduous journey right now. It's called life. And we can easily become depleted. So we want to draw from the energy that God provides us is known as the fruit of the Spirit. So we began looking at that a couple of weekends ago. We said there's really one fruit that God gives us and it's called love. And when we learn to draw from God's love and feed on the fact that God loves us unconditionally, it gives us the capacity then to bless others with the energy of his love as well. Not only that, but we talked also about an aspect of love called joy. A couple of weekends ago, we said that you and I, we can have joy despite our circumstances because we don't draw our joy from the world around us. We draw our joy from God who lives in us. Now this weekend, I want to introduce you to one more energizer, and that is this whole concept of faithfulness. Not a faith that I draw out from myself, but a faithfulness that God provides for me. Look again at Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. It says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives love, and then everything else is an aspect or a characteristic of love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Here it is. Faithfulness is what we're focusing on this weekend. And later on in the year, we'll grab some more of these for energy. He says, against these things, there is no law. So the question in front of us is, well, what is this Holy Spirit-given faithfulness? How do you define faith or faithfulness? Well, if you go to the Bible, famous passage that defines faith is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. There the writer says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. So we have faith in what's coming based on the promises of God, what God's done in the past, what He's doing in our current life and what we expect He's going to do in the future. And that's what gives us hope. We don't don't draw hope from this world and these circumstances. We draw our hope ahead from glory, from where we know we're going and what we know life is going to be like. I also like what Elton Trueblood wrote. Elton Trueblood was a philosopher, a Christian. Uh, He was a chaplain at Harvard, Stanford. He said that faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Trust without reservation. You know, the Bible gives us proof about God and about truth. The Bible says, just look at nature itself. It speaks of God, the Creator And, of course, we have history and archaeology and our personal experiences and fulfilled prophecy and so many things that remind us that what God said indeed is true. But listen carefully. Faith also is trusting without reservation, without holding back. Holy Spirit-given faith is a loyalty to Christ no matter what, no matter how bleak the circumstances might be. And let's be honest that These days, things seem kind of bleak in the world and in our country, maybe even in your life or our lives. I mean, think about it. COVID is spiking, we're being told. Not only that, but uh, social unrest is spreading. And besides that, political and economic troubles are deepening. Hey, listen, it's not like we've missed the high tide. In many ways, it feels like our ship has run amok on the rocks. Or, you ready for this? Or is what we're experiencing around us, in our lives, around our lives as individuals, as families, or even as a church, is it possibly a God-given ob portu? In other words, is God presenting us as believers with an opportunity for Him to glorify Himself? for him to show his strength and his power. You probably know that story back in the Old Testament. Moses and the Israelites are poised to go into the promised land. And God tells Moses to send 12 spies ahead on a reconnaissance mission and bring back evidence of how bountiful and fruitful the land is and to say what they discover. So the 12 go out and the 12 come back. And 10 of them say to Moses, Yep, land is bountiful. It's amazing. But the cities are well fortified. The warriors there, the people there are like giants. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're going to be crushed by them. Oh, if we had only stayed in Egypt and been slaves. Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12, they kind of stand out of the picture and they say, Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, 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 they're well-fortified cities. And, you know, the men are strong. They're warriors. They're brave and all of that. But, but, hey, listen, we have a God who delivered us from the strongest man in the world, Pharaoh, who divided the Red Sea so we could go through, who provided us food and water and defeated our enemies. This is no problem for God. Let's go. But the people refused to go. They listened to the majority. They listened to the ten pessimists. And as a result, God punished them. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years till that unfaithful, unbelieving generation died off. Now, jump ahead 40 years later. Moses has died. Joshua is now in command. He's the man. He's leading the way. Nothing's changed in the promised land. No, the cities are still well fortified, perhaps even more so. And the warriors are still strong and big. And the odds still are very impossible to think about, to look at. But something has changed. Something's changed for this new generation. You see, they've moved from an attitude of fear to an attitude or a fierce faith. I want to read to you Part of the passage. If you want to join me, you can grab your Bibles or your electronic version of the Bibles and turn open to Joshua chapter 3. I just want to read a few verses and I encourage you to read all of Joshua chapter 3 later on. But here's where we're going to start, verse 7. It says, The Lord told Joshua, Today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you, just as I was with Moses. Give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. Now look at verse 11. It says, look, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Come down to verse 13. The priests will carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream and the river will stand up like a wall, just like the Red Sea. Look at verse 15. It was the harvest season and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan, And the water below that point Flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. And then I just want to read a couple of verses, and actually, one verse in chapter 5. Listen to what it says. Chapter 5, verse 1 When all the Amorite kings west of Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River. So the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. Now remember, 40 years earlier, Israel was paralyzed with fear because of the Canaanites. But because of faith, the faith of Joshua, I love it. There's a passage where it says that Caleb and Joshua were of a different spirit, that Joshua had the Spirit of God in him. Because of their faith, now the Canaanites are trembling in fear, not because of the Israelites, but because of the God of the Israelites and how he can separate a river. They've heard about the Red Sea and they've heard about what happened in Egypt. They are trembling. Let me ask you a question. What causes you to tremble these days? What are you worried about? What scares you? Maybe you wanna write it down. I mean, is it loss that has you fearful? Is it uh, illness that has you fearful? Is it uncertainty? I meet so many people, and I'll admit, I struggle with it too. Who, we just hate uncertainty. Is it uncertainty that has you on edge? Is it not knowing if the market's gonna go down or how far down? Is it wondering who's going to be elected next? Is it wondering what's going to happen, you know, with other countries and other nations and the future and on it goes? What is it that scares you? What is it that worries you? Is it possible that what you're facing, what we're facing together as the body of Christ, isn't something to be afraid of? But it's something to overcome by faith. It's an opportune given to us by God for God to show how great and how strong He is. You see, I think this passage and many passages in the Bible present to us a grand idea, really an invitation. I put it like this. God is inviting you and me. God invites us to practice a fierce faith so that we can turn overwhelming obstacles, what you might be facing, what we're facing in our culture today, into God-given opportunities, or God-given opportunities. God is inviting you and me, individually, as families, as friends, as a church, as campuses. God is inviting us to practice a fierce faith so that we can turn overwhelming obstacles into god given opportunities. And that excites me. And I've been thinking to myself, you know, so many of us have become so negative about what's happening around us, myself included. I mean, we have become so negative that I think we've talked ourselves into fear. And we've talked ourselves into angst and even into anger about it. Maybe we need to repent of that. Maybe we need to look at what's happening around us and say, you know what? Maybe this is a God-given opportunity. Even in my own little crisis that you might be having, an illness or a loss or, or, or a job challenge or, or, or a relational challenge, perhaps, perhaps what that is is an opportunity for God to work in you and through you and to glorify himself. What a different way to think about what's going on in the world right now. That God can use COVID to glorify himself. God can use the social unrest to glorify himself. If we'll have a fierce faith in God, you so well, how, how, how do I get this fierce faith? How, how can I get this Holy Spirit-given faith activated in my life? I am so glad you asked. I want to look at a couple principles with you. And Here's the first principle. A God-given faith is activated by a God-given vision. A God-given faith is activated by a God-given vision. You know, if you go back to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, all 12 spies sent by Moses went into the promised land, and they all saw the same thing. But each of them, I should say ten of them, had a different reaction from two of them. What was the difference? Ten went in and saw the impossibility. Ten went in and said, they're going to crush us. Two went in and they saw the possibility. They said, God will crush them. We see that theme repeated throughout the Bible. One of the most famous scenes of all is, when Saul and the Israelites are looking at this giant named Goliath. And Goliath's calling out, send me your bravest, strongest man. We'll go to hand-to-hand combat. Winner takes all. And nobody wants to go out. They look at the situation. They go, it's impossible. He's going to beat us. For 40 days, they listen to him taunt. They get all dressed up, but they never play the game. And then comes this young shepherd boy named David. And he looks at this giant And he doesn't see see an impossibility. He sees a grand possibility. You see, when David looks at the giant, he does not see the giant as his problem or Israel's problem. He sees the giant as God's problem. And God is bigger than the giant. Let me ask you a question. And I'm asking it myself, okay? Whatever problem or problems you're facing right now, whether real or imagined, Are they really your problems if you're a follower of Christ or are they God's problems? In fact, I was thinking about this and I I thought to myself, you know, a lot of times we think about sin as our problem. But if you really think about this, God has made our sin His problem. Jesus took our sin. He made it His problem. He suffered the consequences of it, but He defeated it on the cross. So in a sense, our greatest problem has been taken from us. And while we do face, yes, physical and emotional and physical kinds of problems in our, in our lives, the, the point is we have victory of those problems in Christ if we'll have a fierce faith, a trust without reservation in who Jesus is and what he has done for each of us. You say, well, how, how do I get that kind of, that, that kind of um, trust without reservation? Well, the answer to the question is VIM, V-I-M. Say, VIM, yes. I get this from Dallas Willard in his book, Spiritual Renovation of the Heart. talks about this acronym of VIM. So I want to walk through it with you, all right? The V actually stands for vision. Vision. When you think about Joshua and Caleb, and now the Israelites, 40 years later after the first disaster, They have a vision. They have a vision of going into the promised land and conquering the promised land. It's like they can see it. They can taste it. They can see themselves taking over those fortified cities, defeating those enemies, and establishing the promised land as their home. It's a real clear vision to them. When you think about the problems you're facing in your life, when we think about the problems we're all facing together, can you see past the problem can you see what God could do in spite of the problem, in spite of the cancer, in spite of the loss, in spite of the challenge? Can you see what God could do? That's vision. And that's what begins this activation of the seed of God-given faith. Now let's talk about the I. The I stands for intention. Intention. See, it's not enough for Joshua and God's people to just sit on one side of the Jordan and imagine what it would like, be like to be on the other side. They have to make a decision that they're going to cross the Jordan and take on the challenge. I think a lot of times we imagine what it would like to be victorious, spiritually speaking. We imagine what it would like to be faithful. We imagine what it would like, be like to be loving, uh, be like to witness, to, to be like to show joy, etc., but just imagining it doesn't make it happen. You've got to then make a decision that you're going to pursue that vision, that picture you have of what God might do in that particular situation. Then the word M stands for means. That is, how are they going to get across? How are they going to tackle it? And the means by which they do this is the Ark of the Covenant that they carry. When the priests carry it and they touch the water, the water separates like the Red Sea did, and they go through. But the means is actually the very instruction of God. As they listen to God, as they follow and obey Him, He gives them victory in the midst of impossible odds. What I'd like to do is, um, I'd like to illustrate this a couple of different ways for us, this whole concept of them. Let me use uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, as an example. And by the way, AA is a great program, and it draws actually from a lot of biblical truths. But I want you to think about this, it starts with a vision. An alcoholic is challenged with a vision of becoming sober, to imagine what it would be like to no longer be drunk, to no longer have hangovers, to no longer be wasting money, to have a loving family, to have healed relationships to be able to keep a job. But it's not enough just to imagine it. The alcoholic then has to intentionally make a decision to begin to realize the vision. And that decision is to go to the meetings and to get a sponsor. So you got to get off their backside and actually go and begin that process. But that's still not enough. They then have to begin to practice the 12 steps and practice it the rest of their lives. And as they go through those 12 steps, they move into sobriety, and what they dreamed and hoped for becomes a reality. And I've been in AA programs uh, because friends who are, who are getting their, you know, their honors for being sober for a year or five years or 15 years, and they get those beautiful coins, they, they've asked me to come. And what a celebration it is to, to clap for somebody who's been sober. realizing their vision. What a joy it is when you trust God, and you move with God, and you take him seriously, and you begin to see him change your heart. Maybe not your circumstances, but change you so that the circumstances seem different. They're the same, but they seem different because something's happening inside of you. Faith is coming alive in you. Let me give you another example. You know, I've had some people wondering, okay, so what are we going to do when it comes to this whole issue of racism in our culture? What's Wooddale going to do? Or or, or have we gotten kind of lazy? Did we make all kinds of sound and now we're just going back to the way things were until there's another episode? I want you to know that that we have a vision, that I have a vision. I have a vision for us aligning ourselves with initially an African-American church, a leading African-American church in the Twin Cities, forming a partnership and a friendship and building that relationship and then modeling how people of color, in this case in particular, black and white, can be of one mind and one heart and how God can use us together to reverse the, the tide of injustice, bigotry. They exist because of the color of somebody's skin we're all of the same race, the human race. We're all God's creation. We all have the same parents. We ought to be pulling together and not pulling apart. And so I've made an intentional decision some time ago to begin a relationship. And, and I'm in a growing friendship with a leading African-American pastor in the Twin Cities. And we're having a great time together, building this friendship. And I'm learning so much from him and his team. And We're sharing and we're talking about our differences and we're talking about what we have in common and I'm learning so much in this relationship. And what is happening with the two of us is what we want then to happen with our staff and happen with our leaders and happen with you as a congregation. And so we've already started working on the means, the M, the ways that we're going to do this. And he's going to be coming here and speaking later on in September and I'll introduce him to you and his church I'm going to speak at his place later on in the fall. And then we're going to begin some meetings back and forth and do some projects together. I just want you to know the vim is alive. And, and we'll let you know, because one of the things I've learned in this whole process, you can't rush it. It has to be something that, you, you know, that, that we walk hand in hand together and do. And so you'll be hearing about that. But you know, another thing that's really exciting, talking about Vim, we want to we see God work through our microchurches. I think one of the things that COVID has taught us is that the church doesn't have to always be within a building called a church. It can be in a home. And so right now, I've been training about 18 people, and some of them not even from Wooddale, from other areas that are joining us, not even in this state. And I tell you, it's one of the most exciting uh, nights of my week. To be with them right now on this Zoom call training and to see them getting excited and to hear their stories of how they're beginning to pray for their neighborhoods and friends and, and how God's leading them to engage them with, about Christ. So we've got the vision of what it could be like. We're now involved in the means. They, they did the intention. They already joined our microchurch group. And soon I believe that Wooddale is going to be spread throughout neighborhoods in homes and garages and rented storefronts doing church. Vim is coming alive. Or those of you who are watching right now, whether it's at one of our campuses or whether it's in one of our video venues, or for many of you watching, not just here in Minnesota, but around the world, you know something when COVID hit? Our team did an amazing job. They got a vision for what we could do to improve our online presence. They took the decision points and then begin to enact the means by which this could happen and here we are today and i think our online presence is going to last for a very long time and god's going to use it and he is using it vim do you have do you have some vim in your life it is the vim that activates our faith and causes us to see god at work in amazing ways all right let's look at a second principle here it is ready God-given faithfulness requires God-given courage. I challenge you to read Joshua 1, 6 through 7. At least three times that passage. God tells Joshua, be of good courage, be of good courage, be of good courage, Joshua. And where does he draw his courage from? The same place that we are called to draw our courage from. He draws his courage from the promise of God, this land will be yours you and I need to draw our promise, our courage from the promises of God as well. He draws his courage from the very word of God, the instructions of God. Thank God that you and I have the freedom of the scriptures. How we can go to the word of God every day and draw courage for our lives. Every day I open God's word up. Every morning I rest in God's word for a while. And I'm telling you what, I can't I, I've been going through the book of Romans. I've been drawing so much strength every day from what God says. Just the other day, something as simple as this, in Romans, I think it's 14, where he says, where Paul says, we are to honor God in our life and honor God in our death. And I just thought to myself, God, that's my motto. I want to honor you in my life and I want to honor you in my death. Help me to honor you by a life of love, by a life of joy, by a life of peace. It mentions in that passage. And then, listen, We draw our courage from the presence of God. We're not alone. David penned those famous words, Psalm 23, even though I walk the valley of shadow death, I'll fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Jesus came walking in the water to scare and frighten disciples. He said, fear not, I am with you. And he promised before he left that we would never be alone, that he would send the comforter. And we've been seeing in God's word how the Holy Spirit is not just with us, but he's in us. And learning every day to yield to his presence, to draw from his strength. Listen, can I just, can I just challenge you? Don't try to draw strength and hope from personalities, politicians, celebrities, money-making people. Don't try to draw your strength from human beings, from pastors, from authors. All of those people, the good, the bad, the ugly, all right? They're all going to disappoint us because they're imperfect. And the systems they create are imperfect. But listen to me. God is perfect. He has what we need if we'll turn to Him. You know, one of the terms that you hear used sometimes is this concept of aliyah. It's a Hebrew word. And people make aliyah to Israel. It means they move to Israel. But the biblical term aliyah means up. And it was used to talk about the journey up to Jerusalem. And when the Israelites made the journey up to Jerusalem, they did it physically because Jerusalem's perched on Mount Moriah. You have to always go up. But also spiritually because they were going to the temple. Every day, you and I get a chance to make an aliyah. Our aliyah is to move up into the presence of God through prayer, through his word, through meditation, drawing our strength from him so that our problems, our challenges, and our our circumstances around us turn from being obstacles to opportunities for God to show his strength in and through us. Remember what Paul said? He said, when when I am weak, he is strong. He is strong. And that strength comes through when we depend on him and our weaknesses, which takes us to one last principle, and that principle is this. We activate faith by God-given faithfulness that is energized by God-commanded obedience. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. No, does God tell Joshua, "Have courage, have courage, have courage"? But He says, "Obey my word, my instruction carefully." A lot of people have tried to climb Mount Everest. Ninety percent never make it to the summit, to the top. They have to turn around and go back. Over 165 have died trying to get to the summit, but not Eric. Wayanmaer. So, what makes Eric Wayanmaer so, so important? If other people have climbed and made it, Eric Wayanmaer is blind, and he climbed to the top of Mount Everest. At the age of 13, he contracted a disease and lost all of his sight, but he never let it stop him. To the point that he sought to summit Mount Everest, and he did it three ways he listened to a bell that was attached to the climber ahead of him on the rope. And that bell gave him an acute sense of direction. Herrick also listened carefully to the instruction of that climber who would say things to him like, death fall, two feet to the right. And so he listened what not to do as well as what to do. And thirdly, he listened when he placed his pick in ice. He could hear if it was strong and solid enough to support him or if it was weak, and he shouldn't go that direction. The whole point is the reason Eric Wehmeyer made it to the top is because he listened so carefully to what was being said to the sounds of what was happening all around him. I think sometimes we're listening too carefully to the world. We're listening too much to the news. We're listening too much to the pundits. We're listening too much to people's opinions. And what we need to be doing is listening to God. And when we listen to God, he speaks. And he guides us. Have you been listening to him? You know, as I was thinking about this whole concept of vim, I was reminded that, you know, Jesus had a vim. He had a vision for God's creation to be reconciled to the Father again. But he didn't just imagine what it would be like if people could come back to Eden again, if, if we could be in a right relationship with God again. He had an intention that it would happen. He made a decision, and he left this place in glory, and he put on human flesh. And he came and dwelled among us, and the means by which he makes us right with God again is the cross. Jesus took it seemed like an impossibility. And he turned it into an an opportunity. How about you? Let's pray. Father God, I pray and ask that in this season of our lives, when we may be personally, or we as a church together, may be facing some seemingly steep and difficult obstacles, Father, I pray and ask, give us a fierce faith to see them as an opportune from you. Not an obstacle, but an opportunity to trust you. And help us, O oh God, to begin to do that and to expect that, God, you're going to glorify yourself in the midst of all of this chaos. We invite you, O oh God, in our lives. Glorify yourself through whatever we're going through. We invite you in our church, O oh God, in our campuses. Glorify yourself oh God, with what we're facing, what we're going through. Be pleased, I pray, oh God, to energize us with your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, and uh, stay tuned. We've got another exciting series coming up next weekend. We'll see you soon.